Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And welcome to The Napoleonicist and the third instalment of Irish Month. Today I'm joined by Marcus Beresford, a distant relative of William Carr Beresford, who has recently published a biography of the Marshal and is a member of a number of foundations preserving 18th century historic houses. He also recently filmed with BBC Four for the recent TV show, The Billion Dollar Art Theft, and is talking to us today about William Carr's Beresford Wellington's right-hand man. Marcus, great to have you on the show. How have you been? Likewise, Zach. I'm delighted to be here and uh, talking to you. And it's, it's almost as if we're in the next door room or the same room. It's great. It is the joys of Zoom. I think we're all kind of gradually adjusting to it, but hopefully we won't have to do it for much longer. Yeah. Before we explore Beresford's military career, tell us about the family that Beresford was born into. Well, um, he was born, I guess, with half a silver spoon in his mouth, if I can put it that way. Um, he was born into a family which was part of the then ruling class in Ireland. Uh, like many Irish families, um, a mixture of ancestry, uh, Celtic, Norman, English, uh, for some considerable time had been uh, supplying quite a number of uh, members of parliament to the Irish parliament as it then was. Uh, the foundation of the family really rested on, or the recent foundation of it, on a dynastic marriage between uh, Sir Marcus Beresford, who came from Derry or London Derry, and um, Catherine Lepore, who came from Waterford, and the Lepores had come over to Ireland with the with the Normans. So let's let's clear up the relationship because you're not directly an ancestor, are you? You're a relative, but it's quite an interesting kind of connection because I think I remember you telling me that there, there are sort of two connections going on here. I'm not a direct descendant of, of the Marshal, but the Marshal and my direct ancestor had a common grandfather. 
if that's not too convoluted. But the connection is strengthened, I suppose, by the fact that um, the marshal ultimately married his first cousin, who is, again, the sister of one of my direct ancestors. So, um, it, 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 in fact, it's, it's quite complex, but that's about it, I think, yeah. But it's <laughs> yeah. a very interesting story because um, the marshal, as we, we shall probably go on to discuss, was the natural or illegitimate son of the Earl of Tyrone, the, the, ultimately the first Marquess of Waterford. And he apparently was the childhood sweetheart of Louisa Beresford. And uh, he, the families did not encourage the relationship, whether because he was illegitimate or whether because he was a first cousin, whether because, because he was illegitimate, he didn't have the prospects one might have anticipated, they didn't encourage that relationship. And she went off and married Thomas Hope, the well-known English designer, uh, interior decorator, author, and so on and so forth, and had a family with him. And it was only when Thomas Hope died, and both she and Marshall Beresford, as he'd now become, uh, were in middle age, that they got married. And so it's a rather nice story. Um, and uh, of course, at that stage, you know, they didn't give a damn who thought anything because they were mature. They were both successful and relatively wealthy and they had a very happy life together, I think. That's lovely. It's nice that, you know, you, you have this kind of this unpleasantness early on in his life regarding his illegitimacy, but then it all kind of comes good at the end. I like that. Yeah. Well, let's, let's stay with that theme for a moment then. Bearing in mind his illegitimacy, what was his early life like? Is he sort of pushed to the fringe much more than he might have expected or, or not? Well, what's really curious about um, William is that he had an elder brother as well who was also illegitimate, John Pooh Beresford, who ultimately became an admiral uh, in, the, in the Royal Navy. Um, but both of them were acknowledged by the Earl of Tyrone as his sons before he married. And <clears throat> both of them were looked after, but what is really unusual is that there is no certainty as to who their mother is. Normally one knows who the mother of illegitimate children is, but quite often not the father, but this is a, a reverse case. Now, because he's got the name Carr, there is a huge, shall we say family tradition that um, the, the mother was a lady called Carr who worked at Curramore, the family home in County Waterford. And indeed, to this day, there are Carr families in the locality. So it's quite possible. And I would sort of support that theory because the name Carr does not occur anywhere in the very extended Beresford family, except for William save that about 80 years later, someone calls his godchild Carr Beresford, and it's clearly because they want to sort of curry favor with the marshal sort of thing, you know? So I, I think there's a strong, but no conclusive proof that a, a local lady uh, was the mother. But that, be that as it may, um, his father acknowledged him. 
he spent relatively few years at Curramore because aged eight, he sent along with John, his, his elder brother, the two of them are sent first to Catterick in Yorkshire to school and then to a school in York itself. And uh, why that was chosen, I don't know. I don't think there was any desire to send them away, to keep them out of sight. Um, they seem to have been very happy there. In York, they were looked after by two sisters with whom they remained in, in contact in later life. Um, and it seems to have been a relatively happy period of their, of their lives. So the fact that they both end up having military careers, um, but William obviously going into the army, yeah. as you said, his, his elder brother into the Navy, does that give them, and I'm thinking about what Rory Muir has written recently about kind of gentlemen's sons, second sons, does that kind of give the sense that the illegitimate children of wealthier men were more likely to be treated by second, more likely to be treated like second sons, in your opinion, or, or is this quite unusual in terms of how they're treated? I don't think it's that unusual. Um, I, I think that, uh, first of all, of course, they didn't have expectation of inheriting land and wealth, but they did both get a leg up from their father. Um, there's no doubt about that in terms of purchase of commissions uh, it, during their life. I, I think there's one other thing that I would just explain to you, because I think it explains a lot about the whole Anglo-Irish uh, dynamic at the time. And that is that two years after William was born, his father married Elizabeth Monk. And Elizabeth Monk's own mother the monks lived here in Ireland, but Elizabeth Monk's own mother was a sister of the Duke of Portland. And there was a political connection straight into the, the center, if you like, uh, of English politics. So I think that's quite important in terms of generally, and, and I'd be quite frank about it, advancement um, of families, you know? Absolutely. I mean, it's incredible how closely knit all of these connections are. Everybody has a relative who's somebody. It's, it's exactly, absolutely yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. incredible how these names keep popping up. Because initially when you said Monk, I was half wondering if there was a connection with General Monk, famously involved in, in the Restoration uh, in the 1660s. But of course, Monk was posted up in Scotland. But anyway, it's, it's just incredible how there are so many names that keep popping up in, in this is, period. Yeah. So... Oh, Obviously, we'll discuss the more famous elements of Beresford's life in a moment, but let's discuss his career pre-Peninsula War. Why did William go into the army, first of all? Well, I haven't come across any evidence saying I particularly want to go into the army, but I think it was a sort of natural progression, as you say, for a second son type person. Actually, both he and John, his, his other half-brother, um, were perhaps more successful than any of the main family, which was a pretty extensive family as well. So in, in that sense, it shows that it, it wasn't a hindrance you know, to, to them. But um, William, uh, after going to school in York, was sent to a military college at Strasbourg. And as you know, uh, um, France was one of the epicenters of military colleges at this stage. Um, England was rather behind hand, I mean, the, there was the, 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 the Royal Mil Military Academy for Engineers, 
uh, and of course the, the, the RMC came along in the 1790s. But just like Wellington was sent to Angers, Beresford was sent to Strasbourg. And I haven't been able to find out which military college he attended in Strasbourg, but I did discover there were quite a few of them. And so uh, I, I, that's a sort of thing still to be done if I can ever do it. Um, uh, I think uh, departmental archives in France will have to be tackled on, on that point at some stage. He only spent a year there and then came back and uh, began life as, a, as a, an ensign in the Sixth Regiment. Uh, which is the Warwick Regiment. And his, he was sent out very quickly to uh, Newfoundland, to, to modern day Canada, where his military career might well have ended because um, while out shooting one day with a, a friend, actually another Irishman, um, the birds apparently got up and the friend took a shot. And of course, pellets uh, went into Beresford's left eye. And effectively he lost sight in that eye or virtually total sight um, and that's why when you see paintings of, of William Carr Beresford, in some of them he has this rather glassy sort of stare in his left eye, whereas other ones they used artistic license and he looks totally natural and, you know, 24-24 vision or 20-20 vision, as you call it, you know. But um, his early career was, was interesting, if not uh, spectacular. He comes back from uh, Newfoundland in 1789. Uh, he comes back as a lieutenant, changes regiments as they do into the 69th. And then um, as captain in the 69th, he becomes a Marine and he joins Hood uh, in the Mediterranean, um, which is I think a very formative part of his career as a Marine. And there he serves at Toulon, at the famous Royalist uh, rising in Toulon and its eventual subjugation by, of course, Napoleon uh, as a young artillery officer. But Beresford's involved in the burning of the French fleet um, uh, as they retire. And of course, then under Hood, um, they go off and they, uh, at the request of the Corsican nationalists under Paoli, um, they go and they capture Portugal. Uh, sorry, they captured Corsica eventually in 1794. And there's a very interesting little story because one of the uh, assaults that Beresford is involved in is at Mortella in, on the northern coast. And this is this uh, huge round tower. And they discover that when they're trying to shell it from the sea, the cannonballs just keep glancing off this tower. They're out the shape of it. And it takes a lot to subdue the tower and the um, commanders, both the, the naval and military commanders, are so impressed that they send the plans back to uh, England and these become the so-called Martello Towers that are then dotted around England and Ireland throughout the revolutionary Napoleonic Wars. Anyhow, for his efforts there, he obtains his majority Zach, and that is a stepping stone. He doesn't stay long in Corsica, um, but he's back in England in 1795, the summer of 1795. And here, of course, uh, family patronage and the influence of his father comes into play again, because the, one of the many Irish regiments raised in these wars uh, was the Waterford Regiment, of course, where he comes from. And the Waterford Regiment is essentially raised by his father. And sent over to England. It's based in Hampshire. Beresford comes back and hey presto, 
Lieutenant Colonel Beresford, but it wasn't to last for long because <clears throat> the 88th Regiment, the Connaught Rangers of fame, um, had been in Walsheron, that graveyard of British armies in 1794, and it had come back with something like 230 effectives. It had lost to disease, not to fighting with the French, huge numbers. And <clears throat> the decision was taken to reverse the Waterford Regiment into the Connaught Rangers. Effectively, the Connaught Rangers took on all its men as a draft, if you like. And Beresford was lucky enough then to become Lieutenant Colonel of the 88th, the Connaught Rangers, one of the, the great fighting regiments, if I can say it, of the British Army uh, throughout this period. And he remains Lieutenant Colonel of that regiment until 1809, when he becomes Colonel of the regiment, which he then holds for quite a number of years. So it's, it's a seminal step for him. So he's Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel and then Colonel of the 88th. Yeah. I'm just thinking there's a, a prominent individual by the name of Sir Thomas Picton who has a pretty dim view of the 88th. Yeah. People, we'll probably talk about this further in a bit, but Picton, um, a senior divisional commander under Wellington during the Peninsula War, for folks who aren't familiar, um, turns around to the Connacht Rangers and says, you're not the Connacht Rangers, you're the Connacht Footpads, um, has a number of very scathing comments to make. So with that in mind, what's the relationship like between Beresford and Picton? Um, as far as I know, that relationship is very good. No, I, I don't think there's any problem with that relationship. Of course, yes, um, what happened was that Picton, as we know, arrived in Portugal and um, inspected the Connaught Rangers just as uh, uh, two, I think, young um, men, other ranks, were being, um, had been apprehended for stealing a goat. And uh, he, 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 this has led to the remark that you're the Connaught footpads. But, you know, after Busaco, um, he had came to inspect them again. And they very cheekily said, are we the Connaught footpads now? You know, and he had to eat a bit of humble pie, you know. I do like that moment because in fairness to Picton, for all of his many faults, which yeah. have recently been raised quite prominently in the news, he he was the sort of person who would give credit where credit was due and and he was prepared to take that step down and go actually no you know what um and i think a similar thing happened at badahoff didn't it yes um, where or was it theodore rodrigo I, I forget which where they they ask a similar question and he cheers them yeah. um something like the town is ours hurrah um yeah. so he, he is he's willing to give credit where it is, is due. Well, no, I just take you up on, on, on Theodad Rodrigo. Again, it's tangential to our main discussion, but at uh, Theodad Rodrigo, another relative of mine, John Thaddeus Beresford, um, was uh, part of the Forlorn Hope. And he was blown up at the same time, he was with General McKinnon, and they were blown up together on the ramparts. And McKinnon died. And John Beresford, John Thaddeus, to distinguish him from other John Beresfords, John Thaddeus lingered for 10 days in the Marshal's house in Villa Formosa, where he was taken. And they didn't think he was in any danger. He had terrible burns on his face, apparently. But they didn't actually think he was in danger, but he expired after 10 days. And he is buried in the ramparts of the castle at Almeida in Portugal. And there is a gravestone there, a tombstone, to him, both in English and Portuguese. 
and um, it, it's just worth something uh, if you're visiting the area because there are so few um, memorials uh, to the many uh, of the British Army who fought in Portugal. And this is a young lieutenant. He joined the Carnot Rangers, the 88th, uh, age 16, and he died age 20 following the, the siege of Theodad Rodrigo. Blimey. But you'd probably like to get back to William. Well, I mean, yes, in a way, but that's also incredibly interesting. Firstly, that there are there seem to be so many connections between your family and <laughs> significant events and individuals throughout this period. But also, as you say, it is incredibly rare to find grave gravestones, effectively, to that. Um, I know you're involved in the British cemetery at Elbash, where three, um, in, in fact, it's the largest known collection, if I remember rightly, of um, dead from the British dead from the Peninsular War. Uh, where there are, are three who were buried together um, in Elbash, the, the fortress there. Uh, but yeah, I, I've never heard of this one at Almeida. Mm. Well, 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 I think uh, William, or, or the Marshal, as he'd become by that stage, he, he had a bit of a penchant, I think, for uh, creating cemeteries. Um, because when he was uh, commander in uh, Madeira, which we may get to uh, in 1807, he established the British cemetery there in Funchal. And then, as you say, Elvas came along um, as well in, in 1811. Uh, uh, and I guess it was his influence that allowed, because we know that Protestants couldn't be buried in Catholic cemeteries at the time. It was his, his influence that enabled um, a, the building of the, the uh, cemetery at Elvas, which again was in the, in the, in the fort, in the, uh, in the battlements. You, I'm sure you, you've seen it, but, uh, and, uh, and B, then putting John Thaddeus again into the, the fort at Almeida, you know. Yeah, incredible. Just the, the connections are sort of blowing my mind ever so slightly. Let's take it back to, to William Beresford, though, because I interrupted you kind of midway well, through yeah. the story. Um, we're, we're, at, um, we're at 1795 odd. And of course, he, he had a pretty lucky stroke then, in a way, because in 1795, the 88th was designated to form part of Abercrombie's expedition to the West Indies. Again, another well-known graveyard of British soldiers. And they were part of the force sent out under Abercrombie with uh, Admiral Christian. And the, the fleet was destroyed by a storm, two storms, in fact. And the 88th, which was quartered on a number of different vessels, as was the want at the time, was literally dispersed to all corners of the world. One ship finished up in Malta, quite how it finished up in Malta, heading for the West Indies, it, you know, one wonders. But another one in Gibraltar, um, some got to the West Indies, a couple of companies actually got to the West Indies of the 88th, uh, but uh, Beresford and his, uh, uh, his, his staff were driven back and came back to Britain. And he was then posted with the 88th, which was trying to recuperate and pull itself together. He was posted in Jersey, uh, the island of Jersey for a couple of years. And uh, that plays a part in his later life as well. But he's posted in Jersey and the regiment essentially is, is reforming uh, between 1796, shall we say, and up to 1799. And there is one really interesting little snippet about that. Because in 1798, of course, we have the Irish Rebellion, a huge rebellion in Ireland, um, absolute anarchy for 
a couple of months, eventually the rebels are defeated. And the decision is they're held in uh, prisons here, in transport hulks, they're ready to be sent to Australia. But the British government doesn't have enough transports to send them to Australia at the time. The demand for shipping was so, so huge. And uh, these men, a number of them, are offered an alternative. And the alternative is, would you like to join the British Army? Now, these are men who'd been fighting against the British Army ferociously for the best part of a year. Over a hundred of them are now drafted into the Connaught Rangers. They join the Connaught Rangers in Jersey. And as far as I can see, these are not men who desert the Rangers later. They stick with it. And I think it's, it's, it's really ironic that here they are, they've been fighting for Irish independence, and now they're part of the British military system. So it's just a side story, uh, a, a side story. And I, I, we don't need to dwell on it because in 1800, the Connaught Rangers and William are sent to India. And they go out to India via the traditional route, Madeira, uh, the Cape of Good Hope, and then they arrive in India just after one Arthur Wellesley has effectively won the war there. So they're a little late for the fighting, uh, Tipu Sultan uh, and all that. They're a little late for that fighting, but um, the interesting thing about it and why I mention this is that Beresford no sooner gets to India and that he writes to Richard Wellesley, um, who at the time, of course, is, is the political power in India. And he says, um, if possible, I'd like to serve under Arthur. I'd like to serve with Arthur. And um, I'm sure the families, again, at, at this stage, later, there are very close connections. But I'm sure the families, since they came from similar backgrounds in Ireland, must have known them each other here. Uh, and Richard writes back and says, yes, um, I'll try and organize this sort of thing. But as we know, the next expedition out of India is under General Baird, who'd also been involved at Seringapatam. And um, Wellesley, who was meant to be with the expedition, doesn't travel for whatever reason, whether it's illness or otherwise. And that expedition is to be sent to Egypt, again to support Abercrombie, who is coming in from the Mediterranean to defeat Napoleon's uh, soldiers and army in Egypt. But in this case, Beresford goes with David Baird, General David Baird, up to the Red Sea, and they land at a place called Kossir, the 88th, and Beresford is in charge of the 1st Brigade, which includes the 88th. And they set out on this trip across the desert, 120 miles. Doesn't sound like much, but remember, we're talking about 1801. 120 miles, burning sunshine, daytime temperatures of over 40 degrees. And they set out across the desert. And they get to Gena on the Nile. Gena's on the Nile, and they get there, which is their objective, and they manage to only lose two men. And then they sail down the Nile towards uh, Cairo, towards Alexandria, to join up with Abercrombie. Poor Abercrombie has been killed, as we know, earlier that year, in March 1801, in fighting with the French, and the army is now under General Hutchinson. And Baird and Beresford arrive, but they actually arrive too late again for the fighting. Having arrived in India a little late, they arrive too late in Alexandria, just as the, the treaty is being organized 
and the French are being sent home. Um, but what is interesting is that um, two things arise out of this. One, Beresford is made the commandant of Alexandria, which the, Ber which the British uh, rule effectively for about a year until the Treaty of Amiens kicks in and they, they get out of Egypt. But that's the, the first thing, because so, it, 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 it is part, part of his first um, administrative sort of jobs rather than purely military jobs. And the second thing is that this trip down the Nile um, captured the public imagination. It, it appears in the English newspapers and things like this. And I think Beresford, um, Baird was a very good publicist and I think Beresford gets part of that. It, it reflects on him as well. And it's a, another step up in his career. So in 1803, he comes back after the, the or late 1802, he comes back from Egypt uh, to Ireland, where in fact, another rebellion is then taking place under Robert Emmett. And he is involved in um, the final sort of cleanup of that. It wasn't, it was fairly short lived that, uh, that rising. But the reason I mention it is that uh, the rebels retired into Wicklow, which is a very mountainous county in, in Eastern Ireland. And they, they are in, in Wicklow, which is probably the epicenter of, of the rebellion anyhow. And Beresford is involved in, in, in searching out for the leaders. And this is probably because Beresford's, the Beresfords had lands in Wicklow as well. And um, I only mention it because Beresford was regarded rightly as a very strict disciplinarian, a fairly tough and reserved commander. But on this occasion, when they capture the rebel leaders, he is adamant that they shouldn't be um, court-martialed and hung, but given another opportunity. And in fact, they went to Australia under a deal, but they didn't go to Australia as convicted felons. They went to Australia as free men in 1805. So it's another side to his life, if you like. I, I just mention it. Uh, of course, the next big event in his life is the expedition to the capture the Cape of Good Hope uh, in, in 1805 and the sequel to that, the capture of Buenos Aires in 1806. And I do think that plays quite an important part in his life. Again, he's not serving at this stage under Wellesley. Um, Baird is again the commander of the expedition to capture Cape of Good Hope and one Popham is the Commodore of the fleet, and one that your, your listeners will be very familiar with at this stage. Um, but um, the, the, they, they set sail from Cove, from the, the port at, at Cork, the, the uh, about force of about 10,000 under David Baird uh, in August 1805, and they zigzagged their way. I, I should ex just explain, just to refresh everybody's mind, um, the Cape had been captured in 1895 uh, by the British from the Dutch, um, but handed back again uh, uh, as part of the peace process later at Amiens. And, but it was essential, not, just, not, not regarded as essential for itself, but as the staging post for India and to safeguard British interests in India. Therefore, uh, Pitt's government, William Pitt the Younger, his government determined to try and capture it again. So Baird is sent out with this force, including Beresford, um, uh, of about 10,000 men. They go via Madeira 
and they then go all the way across to Brazil to uh, San Salvador, modern day, day Bahia, and they unfortunately lose a couple of uh, their vessels on Las Rochas, uh, the reef off uh, San Salvador, including their artillery. Um, but that's by the by. In uh, Brazil, well, modern day Brazil, they take on board uh, horses and of course uh, victuals, and they then sail for the Cape. Uh, Baird's force arrives off the Cape on the 4th of January, uh, 1806. The surf on Melbox Strand, which is where they, they, they land off just north of Cape Town, is so bad that although Beresford gets ashore, he's sent ashore with an advance party, they decide it's too rough to land, to try and land the troops. He is then sent up to Saldana Bay, um, which is about 60 miles north of Cape Town, with, uh, with a, with a, with a with a reg couple of regiments actually, and they're told to sort of land there if they can, because it's, it's a secure moorage, secure anchorage, and make their way back down towards Cape Town. They do that, but no sooner have they left than the next day, the surfer baits and Baird is able to land his main force uh, at Melbox Strand um, uh, and march inland and defeat uh, the Dutch in the Battle of Blauberg. Meanwhile, Beresford once again is toiling down the, the coast with his regiments and arrives a bit late. But um, he, he arrives a little late for the battle. The, the, the Dutch are defeated. He arrives a little late, and, um, but the Dutch general, Janssens, uh, retires into what's known as the Great Karoo, the sort of the, 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 the back area of Cape Town with his forces. And Beresford is sent after him. And uh, interesting enough, um, negotiates uh, with Janssen's his surrender, uh, Janssen's surrender, and Baird is very complimentary about how he does that and writes back to England. So it's a, another feather in his cap, if you like. But <clears throat> I suppose more importantly, what happens then? Well, Popham, who has been trying to get everybody interested in South America for years, um, Popham persuades Baird. They hear stories while they're in Cape Town of the annual convoy of what is called Peruvian silver. Now it actually comes from what is modern day Bolivia, but that was part of the Viceroyalty of Peru at the time. They hear that the uh, annual convoy of Peruvian silver is due to come down to Buenos Aires for transshipment to Spain. I mean, Spain, as we all know, just depended on what it got from the new world by this stage. And <clears throat> Popham persuades Baird I mean, it's completely unauthorized this. It's contrary to the instructions. Actually, Baird is meant to send half his force onto India, but Popham persuades Baird that he should send a force to Buenos Aires to see if they can capture it. And it's, 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 it's almost piracy, this. I mean, but it's, you know, it's taking advantage of an opportunity. And Baird selects Beresford to command the military force. And what is really interesting, he gives him a regiment with which Beresford uh, and other Irishmen, another Irishman, Dennis Pack, who we can probably come back to, is much associated, the 71st Highland Infantry. Pack is Lieutenant Colonel of that regiment and is there in Cape Town. And Beresford is given, I think it's 800 odd men, the 71st, plus a few cavalry and a little bit of artillery and sails with Popham 
They go via St. Helena, uh, where they pick up uh, 200 men more from the St. Helena garrison. And ultimately, they get into the Rio de la Plata, where Beresford and Popham have a bit of a bust up because um, Beresford wants to capture Montevideo on the basis that this is the stronghold of the Spaniards in the area. It is a heavily fortified city. And while they have the advantage of surprise, he wants to go for Montevideo. Popham is having none of it because he says, we need the food, Buenos Aires has the food. Actually, I think it was because Buenos Aires has the money, the, the silver, that's why Popham was so keen to go to Buenos Aires. And what's interesting is, that Beresford uh, has to agree with this as part of, you know, he, 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 Popham is the overall commander of the expedition. Although Beresford reveals that he's now appointed a major general, he was only a brigadier general, by virtue of Baird, Baird has appointed him a major general for the purpose of the expedition, which upsets Popham somewhat because it later comes between them in terms of the claiming of prizes and the percentage in prizes. Popham and Beresford and Baird had a, a long-standing row, Zach, which went to the court and went to the Privy Council as well later. So, you know, it's very interesting. Anyhow, I can see you're laughing at this. Oh, <laughs> uh, this is I... just Popham's worst nightmare, isn't it? Somebody yeah. else can claim half of the money. This isn't good enough. It should all be about Popham and, and nobody yeah. else. Well, Popham had <laughs> hoisted his flag as a Commodore, which he wasn't entitled to do in the terms of this expedition. And that also gives, you know, that gives him a greater share. But that, that's all part of the, the, the legal battles that follow. But in any event, <clears throat> The decision is made, capture Buenos Aires. They land at Quilmes, which is downriver from Buenos Aires, about 12 kilometers away, and they march through a bog. They're met by, um, he, he has about probably, including Marines, including seamen dressed as soldiers, that they have probably about 1,400 men that they actually managed to land. And they, they're met by a Spanish force, mostly on horseback of about 2,000, and they defeat it. What he does, uh, Beresford sends Pack's regiment in um, just by itself. He keeps the St. Helena uh, regiment, or a bit of the St. Helena regiment he has, as he has his only reserve, but Pack makes short work of, of the Spanish. And the governor of uh, Buenos Aires, uh, Sobramonte is his name, um, flees the city, leaves his deputy, Quintana, uh, to negotiate with Beresford, and uh, the Buenos Aires surrenders the next day, effectively. But Sobramonte takes with him the uh, Peruvian silver and goes to a city or a town called Lujan, about 60 miles into the interior. So the strategy is when they take Buenos Aires, they actually, instead of marching in double file, first of all, they have to march in single file, and then they space out the men so much to try and convince the, 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 the Spanish that they've actually got more men than they have. I mean, Buenos Aires is already a city of 40 or 50,000 people. And here they are, 1,400 marching in to take it. So they do take it anyhow. And Beresford sets up, he's, he's got authority from Baird. He declares he's Lieutenant Governor of the city. Um, he does the usual thing. He says um, security of religious practice, fine. But he sets up uh, a free trade, which of course, actually it, it, it delights everybody there or virtually delights everybody there and for a time all goes relatively well um i say for a time he starts to issue edicts so sort of you know and deals with taxation and you know all these things and <clears throat> for a time things goes well but 
the Spanish are gathering, the storm clouds are gathering, the, the boys are coming around from Montevideo, they're coming from the interior, everything else. And as we know, ultimately, um, after a two-day battle, Beresford has to surrender on the 12th of August, and does so, he thinks, on terms, um, which has been agreed with the, the commander, the Spanish commander is actually a, a Frenchman called Delinier, um, who, who's well worth a, a story in his own right. But he agrees terms, he thinks, with Delinier. But um, the powers that be, the, the, the political assembly, if you like, in Buenos Aires, refused to honor those terms. The terms provided for the transport back, as was the want, want in those days, the transport back of the British army to the British Isles. And, you know, no, no penalties, you just go back and that's the end of it. And, you know, um, before he had surrendered, though, there is another great little story. I told you that the silver had been taken to Lujan um, by Sobramonte and his guard. Lujan, 60 kilometers odd from Buenos Aires. During his occupation of Buenos Aires, Beresford sent Robert Arbuthnot, a young, that, that time a young captain, uh, later to be with him in the peninsula, he sends Robert Arbuthnot and 20 men on horseback to Lujan. Says, get the silver, will you? They go to Lujan and blow me a week later, they come back with the entire silver convoy. I mean, it's absolutely fantastic how 20 men did this. It almost defies, you know, uh, explanation, but they do. And of course, before the fall of Buenos Aires, before Beresford has to surrender, he manages to send the uh, silver back to England. So is, is Popham quite accommodating when it comes to that? Oh, is Popham, you better believe it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, HMS Narcissus, I think it was, uh, goes to Portsmouth. And Popham has clearly arranged the PR of this extraordinarily, because the convoy goes from Portsmouth to London and eventually the Bank of England. And it's all over the papers. And there are people with banners in the streets saying, Popham, Buenos Aires, go gold, silver, blah, blah, blah. And it does a tour of London before it ends up in the bank. So Popham had clearly stage managed this really well, you know. But uh, the great thing about it from Beresford and, and Popham's point of view was, um, A, it gets them great publicity, but B, of course, it's part of prize money as well. They get, they get a share of all this, which they, as, as, you, as you know, they fight over. But Beresford, um, the, the, under the terms, uh, uh, the officers were meant to be uh, courted uh, in, in Buenos Aires until they, they were repatriated. But of course, that doesn't happen because what Beresford did, and Popham to give him his due, in Beresford's case, actually from St. Helena, he wrote to London. Um, he said, if I manage to capture Buenos Aires, I'm gonna need reinforcements. And when they do capture Buenos Aires, both he and Popham write to both London, to the government, but also back to Baird in the Cape and say, send us reinforcements, ASAP. The reinforcements from the Cape get there rather quicker than the reinforcements from London for obvious reasons. And by October, uh, Popham, who's sitting in his ships out in the Rio de la Plata, not having helped Beresford evacuate, by the way, which was one, what Beresford wanted to do rather than surrender. Uh, Popham's sitting out in his fleet in the Rio and a force arrives from Cape Good Hope, about two or 3,000 men. <clears throat> Later in the year, um, 
another force comes out from England, uh, another 8,000, and that includes Ochmuty, uh, Whitelock of fame, and uh, Crawford, young Robert Crawford. Um, uh, and they come out later in the year. But meanwhile, because the, um, of the threat by the British, the Spanish decide to remove Beresford and the officers into the interior. And where do they send Beresford and Pack, and indeed Robert Arbuthnot, but Lujan, where they are quartered in the same house where the silver had been held. It was the, 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 the cast, not the castle, it was a sort of strong house in the middle of Lujan. And there they're quartered and they're treated pretty well. And the interesting thing is they have a correspondence with quite a lot of the Porteños, which is what, you know, the Buenos Aires people are known as. And there is this link being established between Beresford and various Porteños who are already thinking, we need a bit of independence from Spain. This is where we're going, boys. We're looking for independence. And there's a correspondence going on. And <clears throat> the Porteños obviously feel that Beresford is worth cultivating. And in February, um, 1807, we've got up to 1807. In February 1807, when Ochmuti and his further force are arriving at Montevideo and they capture uh, Montevideo, they capture Maldonado, another port on the north side of the Rio de la Plata, the Argentine, the Spanish as they are at that stage, decide we must send the British officers further into the interior. And they determine to send Beresford and some others to Catamarca which is right up in the, um, in the mountains, in the Andes, or the foothills of the Andes. It's a long, long way. And they determined to send them there. But um, a plot is arranged in Buenos Aires. And a, a, a couple of uh, Porteñas ride out. And they come to Lujan to find that Beresford and Pack and, his, and the other officers have already left. Catamarca and they follow them and they catch up with them at a place I think near Arecifes and they, they catch up with them and De La Peña who is the, who's the, the, the fellow leading the, 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 the rescue if I can call it that at this stage he convinces the commander of the force taking the British to Catamarca that Beresford should be sent back to Buenos Aires instead specifically on Linear's instructions. Now, they weren't Linear's instructions, but that's what he says, and he convinces them. And Beresford, because there'd been a bit of a problem, and indeed one of the officers had been killed by a, a, a local, he is a bit hesitant. And he says, no, I won't go back to Buenos Aires unless uh, Dennis Pack, unless Colonel Pack comes with me. So Peña says, right. He says, I'll take Pack and Beresford. And he takes them back to Buenos Aires, and they hide them in Buenos Aires, and three nights later, they put them in a little, literally literal fishing boat and they row them out into the middle of the Rio de la Plata, which is a pretty big estuary at this point. And they meet up with a British naval vessel called HMS Showell and they transfer, transfer them to that. And he goes back and joins the British forces, which are in Montevideo, modern day Uruguay. So Beresford has escaped. And um, of course, a big question arose was had he broken his parole? Because they were under parole in Lujan. And they have to go through a court-martial process, human pack, and the decision is, of course, they haven't broken their parole because the Spanish did not honor the terms of the original surrender, which was for their repatriation. So 
interesting, free to serve again as his pack. And Ochmuti asks Beresford, will you resume your command and lead the next attack on Buenos Aires? To which Beresford replies in the negative, says, no, I must go to England. I've got stuff I must bring to the government's attention. I'm going to go back to England. And there's a correspondence going on all the time now between Beresford and people in Buenos Aires. And I think he was being really careful because Beresford was never a politician, but I think he, 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 he was just careful enough. He was wise enough. You know, do you encourage other people's colonies to rise? Because what's source for goose is source for the gander, you know? And I think he's being very careful, but he, he, he goes back to England. Pack, ironically, remains with Ochmuti and forms part of Whitelock's second disastrous invasion when uh, 8,000 troops invaded Buenos Aires in the summer of 1807 and, and after horrendous losses had to, to pack up and go home. Uh, and Pack, ironically, um, having been made prisoner in 1806, is effectively a prisoner again in 1807. Poor fellow, twice in, in a year with the same enemy, you know, but that, that's another story. Beresford's gone back to England and uh, that's a sort of a natural break, I suppose, in his career, and we can get on to the peninsula fairly soon, you'll be glad to hear. But before we do, how does Beresford feel? I mean, I'm glad that you brought up the Pearl thing, because that was going to be one of my questions as you were talking about it. Um, but how does he feel kind of being a pawn in other people's games to an extent? Because it rather feels from what you've said that he, he's quite kind of clueless about what's happening. He's certainly powerless in terms of having any control over the situation. So if they bundled him in a boat and that boat rose out to uh, a, a Royal Naval vessel, he, there's not a lot he can do about it. What's he going to do? Sort of say, no, actually, I think I'll just stay a, a prisoner. How does he feel about kind of being moved around like this? Well, he, he's, he's obviously, he's, I think he regards it as sort of almost a boy's own ex, ex, expedition. I mean, there's no sign that he, he's very keen to do this, you know. Um, I, I don't think, uh, I mean, both Beresford and Pack um, remain in contact with uh, people in Buenos Aires long after this expedition. And actually, I tell you something which might amuse um, your listeners greatly, Zach, about this, is that I I've been out to Argentina a few times and um, they're very hospitable people. They show with great pride the sort of bullet holes, uh, you know, in the, in the cathedral in Buenos Aires. Uh, where, and, and, and they show me the place that they've got a plaque where Beresford surrendered in on the 12th of August, 1806. But they're terribly friendly and they're very well disposed. Um, and, uh, and I arrived at Buenos Aires airport uh, about 10 or 15 years ago now and had produced my my, my passport to the customs officer and he looks at my passport and he looks at me and he looks at his passport again and he looks at me. He says, not another Beresford, he says. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but having said that, you know, they are well disposed because they, they recognize that Beresford showed them what a small force could do in terms of defeating a colonial power. And their own war of independence began four years later in 1810. And by 1816, Argentina was independent. So they don't have any hostility, and I've never experienced any, any hostility in Argentina. Let's, I mean, you mentioned that the next phase essentially is the Peninsula War. Let's, let's start sort of talking about that. Let's, but let's stay with the sort of the independence 
um, theme for a moment. Beresford has these contacts out in South America, kind of interested in, in the cause of independence from Spain. And yet, obviously, from 1808, Spain becomes Britain's ally. So does that kind of create a, a conflict for him in terms of his, as part of his job, commanding out in the Iberian Peninsula, he's there to support Spanish independence from French control. But at the same time, he's got contacts back in, in the New World who want independence from the very nation that he's trying to secure independence for. It's, it's quite a complex picture. How does he feel about that? Yeah, I think um, two aspects. First of all, um, Beresford uh, and Pack, and indeed the 71st Regiment, um, which the injured had been looked after by the Bethlehemite monks in Buenos Aires and very well treated. They maintain this contact, this flow with the monastery and um, they send them out gifts. I mean, some of the gifts, one of them is a, is a, a wonderful grandfather clock, which uh, I, I'm told is still there. I haven't seen it. Um, a, another um, is of all things, a tea service is sent out to them, you know, you wonder about this, you know, but these are the sort of gifts that take place, you know, and there is a correspondence, but I think that they recognize, uh, and Beresford certainly recognizes that, uh, you know, almost a la Popham, what we have to try and do now is encourage trade with South America and let that develop and let British influence get into South America by virtue of trade. The, the military adventures are over, at least for the moment. Of course, we all know that after the Peninsular War, a, a substantial number of British soldiers went out and fought in the various wars of independence in South America for various leaders. But it, it's really the we see the development of trade, I think, you know. So uh, you've mentioned that a lot of Beresford's early career ends up being sort of him turning up a little bit late for, for, for battles, for campaigns and so on. But one uh, campaign where he quite clearly isn't late by any means is the Peninsula War, um, not least because he ends up being appointed Commander-in-Chief of the Portuguese Army during the Peninsula War. Explain to listeners why that decision was taken in the first place. Why a British CNC as opposed to a Portuguese? Well, just to take one quick step back, um, in 1807 when uh, Beresford got back to England, um, he was then sent with a force uh, in the uh, late autumn, early winter of 1807. He was sent out to take Madeira. Madeira, again, a wonderful, important staging point for British fleets and everybody's fleets. With France invading Portugal, um, effectively a deal was done between the English and the Portuguese that they would take Madeira. And the reason they had to take Madeira was that Prince João, Dom João of Portugal, the regent at the time, um, was desperately trying to maintain neutrality with France. So he couldn't sort of give Madeira over to the English. There had to be some sort of huge force appearing and then a surrender. And that happened on Christmas Eve, 1807. And Beresford was made governor of Madeira. And he had with him, interestingly enough, the third regiment, the Buffs, who later appear, of course, in the peninsula to such effect. Uh, that was one of the regiments he had. Now, he doesn't spend long in Madeira, and I don't think we need uh, uh, spend much time on it because Madeira was handed back to the Portuguese, at least in terms of civil governance, uh, the following year. 
And the reason it was handed back to the Portuguese was quite simply that Britain was after a trade relationship, giving them entry into Brazil. And the quid pro quo from the Portuguese point of view was give us back Madeira, at least to administer civilly. Now there was a British garrison by, uh, 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 which remained in, Port in, in Madeira until the end of the war, until 1814. But the only reason I mentioned Madeira was Beresford only spends six months there, but he does a couple of things. One, he learns a bit of Portuguese. Two, contrary to his orders, contrary to his orders, he doesn't send the Portuguese regiments back to Portugal as he's been ordered, or which are the Portuguese regiments that were in Madeira, or the Azores. Now he doesn't send them back to Portugal for obvious reason. Juno's there. He doesn't want to have them over there, but he doesn't send them to the Azores either, which he could do. He starts to train them and he starts to train these militia regiments to defend the island. And I think that's quite important as time goes on. But in any event, he is kicking in his heels in Madeira. He is becoming frustrated. He is writing letters to the British government saying, I want action, I want action. And eventually, at the end of July, he gets a letter saying, head for Portugal with the buffs, with the third regiment, and join up with Sir Arthur Wellesley. He leaves Madeira on the 16th, but he arrives too late for the battles of Rolica and Vimeiro. <laughs> yeah, I, I promise you, he arrives, he only arrives at the end of August. But, and what their first job is, the, the 3rd Regiment is given the job of occupying the very important forts, which the French have to give up on the estuary. Saint-Julial and the forts along the, the estuary. So that, that's his first job. But then, because of the infamous convention of Sintra, the Portuguese are up in arms. They're up in arms as what they see as the French looting their country and the British effectively helping them. And this, there's an explosion of correspondence to Dalrymple and Burrard and protests, um, both in person, uh, about the convention of Sintra. And what does Dalrymple do? He appoints commissioners. And he appoints a, a Colonel Proby as first, the first commissioner, but very quickly afterwards appoints Beresford, who's now a, a real major general, if I can put it that way. He's been he raised to major general in the spring of the year as a commissioner. And they deal with the complaints of the Portuguese and they recover between them a huge amount of the loot, the ill-gotten gains, that the French have. I mean, everything, uh, uh, you know, there was jewelry, there was ecclesiastical gold and silver, there was artifacts from museums, there were horses, believe it or not, there was carriages, there were boxes of indigo, stuff like this. I mean, put it in perspective, there were Danish ships that were, um, had been caught up and were bottled into the Tagus by the British fleet. There were five Danish vessels and Junot asked for these to be made available for him to take his personal possessions back to Rochefort. Just his personal possessions, you know? So you can imagine the scale of what was going on. But anyhow, Beresford and Proby set to, and they do manage to uh, recover quite a lot. And the real problem is that Junot, very clever, you know, I mean, not very, well, I, I think he's pretty clever. With the church silver and gold, they melt it down and they make it into Napoleon d'Or. So it's then French currency. And he says, but this is French currency, you see. So that they have to concede on and there's no two ways about it. But 
he'd also raided the, the Deposito Publico, the, the public treasury, and they forced him to disgorge all that. They forced him to disgorge a lot of the museum stuff. They forced him to disgorge uh, things like the horses and stuff, which belong to families and things. So, the, you know, it, it's not a totally successful operation, but um, it, it wins him a bit of kudos, I think, in Portugal. And he begins to meet the people who matter in Portugal in this process. And he does one other thing. He writes a report off his own bat on how to defend Portugal and how to reform the army. And he sends it to Dalrymple, and he also sends it to the reconstituted Portuguese Regency. Dalrymple sends it on to London. <clears throat> now, as we know, Dalrymple, Barrard, Wellesley have to go off to answer for their actions at the Convention of Sintra Inquiry in Chelsea and spend the winter there, essentially. Um, Beresford is, uh, again, in command of a brigade under Sir John Moore on the um, trip into Spain and then the horrifying uh, retiring to La Coruña, where um, his battalion doesn't spend much of the day in the fighting of the battle on the 16th, but is then the rearguard as they uh, embark. They do the Dunkirk-esque escape from La Coruña. And in fact, he writes home to, his, he sends a letter to him to his sister, which he sent by another officer who was, went on board earlier. And he sends home a letter to one of his sisters, I think it's Anne, saying that, you know, I suspect I may not get out of this. I may be a prisoner, um, but, you know, I just wanted to let you know I'm fine, sort of thing. And, uh, but eventually they managed to, they get out last um, onto the boats and they're back in Britain um, by the end of January. Um, as, as you know, the, the army was in, a tattered state by the time it got back to various ports. And this is extraordinary because he's back in Britain the end of January. And a week later, he's offered the military command of Jamaica. And uh, he says, no thanks. Um, quite clearly, he thinks Jamaica is going to be another backwater and he's going to miss the action. He says, no thanks. And then within another week of that, he gets a, a letter saying, um, you will go to Portugal, you will assume command of the Portuguese army, and you will rebuild the army. I'm paraphrasing. And well, how is it that a relatively junior major general is popped into this position? Well, initially, the, there was a, a, when the, the letter was written from Portugal requesting a, a general, um, a lieutenant general, please note, on the 24th of December and was considered by the British government in early January, even before Corona. And initially the thought was, we'll send Sir John Moore out there. So Sir John Moore was the pick. The Portuguese, I believe, in fact, I, I, I know that the, uh, at least verbally messages were passed that they would quite like Wellesley. Um, <clears throat> Castle Ray, um, the, 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 sorry, the Duke of York wanted to send another general, Sir John Doyle. So there was quite a field. Obviously, Moore was no longer in the field. But Castlereagh wasn't prepared to let Wellesley go. He was too valuable, quite simply. The British government, I mean, his star was in the ascendant. He was too valuable. Um, there were various other people suggested. But once Sir, the news of Sir John Moore's death had come through, Canning switched his support to Beresford and said, but we must send Beresford. And I think that was quite pivotal um, in deciding who went. Now, 
one can see conspiracies everywhere, and I don't know this for a fact, but Castlereagh, born in Ireland, Wellesley, born in Ireland, Canning, born in Ireland, Beresford, born in Ireland. You know? Uh, now, I don't know that for sure, but I think, look, I think that really what had happened was he'd shown his administrative abilities, first in Alexandria, then in Buenos Aires, then in Madeira. He'd learned Portuguese. He'd written a report on rebuilding the Portuguese army. You know, there were all these pluses. So <clears throat> they determined to send him out. Now there was a problem. He was a relatively junior, as I say, major general. And there was a problem, of course. But the great thing was that there was no problem in terms of sending Wellesley out to command the Allied army because he was junior to Wellesley. But there was a problem with some of the British generals, which we'll see um, when we get to, to Portugal. Anyhow, he hustles out to Portugal, arrives in early March, and um, is made, uh, he's, he's created by the British government, a Lieutenant General for the purposes of this uh, ex expedition. And he arrives in Portugal and is told by the Portuguese, you've got to be a marshal. And he doesn't want to be. He says, no, I don't, you know, he said, they say, you've got to be a marshal because otherwise we've got all the Lieutenant Generals ourselves. You're gonna be, you know, you're gonna be able to command them. So he's made a marshal. What he does, and he, I, I think you need to give Beresford a little more credit from this bluff sort of tough officer. He looks at the terms of his appointment and says, no, this won't do. He said, if I'm going to command this army and if I'm going to rebuild this army, then I must have total control, not you, the Regency, over all appointments, all military appointments, and all matters of discipline, including court-martials, everything like that. And they have to agree that. And he doesn't accept the appointment until that is agreed. And I think that's really important in light of what happens later and the difficulties he has later. Um, so by mid, I think it's about the 15th of March, mid-March, he is now Marshal of the Portuguese army and he sets about trying to rebuild it with 24 British officers which is the initial allocation that was sent out for him. And interestingly enough, if you look at those 24, many of them have served with him in previous lives, if I can put it like that, in previous engagements. So there's obviously quite a following he has and he persuades these people to come out with him. Um, it, they soon realize, of course, the 24 isn't gonna be sufficient to rebuild a Portuguese army, which has been totally dismembered uh, and reduced by Juno during his occupation of Portugal. I mean, you know, we know that it, it was it was uh, Portuguese army. The only, I suppose, good regiments were actually sent north to Napoleon, uh, where they became the, the Portuguese legion and fought for Napoleon with some considerable distinction for the rest of the war. But Napoleon very wisely kept them up in Northern Europe. They couldn't get back to Portugal, even if they wanted to. Um, so they fought for, 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 for Napoleon until 1814, suffered horrendously um, in things like the retreat from Moscow. Anyhow, so, yeah. So with this, this situation that you've got, and as you say, Beresford being quite canny in terms of working out what's going to be acceptable and what isn't going to be acceptable in terms of his degree of control. And there being all of these other lieutenant generals of the Portuguese service already. Is there kind of resistance from some of the officers at different stages that you've got this foreigner who's been parachuted in? 
I'm thinking kind of of, of Wellington famously kind of experiencing huge problems for, with jealousy from Spanish officers when he's made CNC of the Spanish army. Is there an equivalent for Beresford or is there an acceptance that this is what we need to do to, to resist the, the French? No, I think there's an acceptance. And I think this is born out of the fact that there was a tradition in Portugal of having foreign commanders in the army. As far back as the War of the Spanish Succession, uh, Ruveni, the Earl of Galway, who had been uh, involved in the Williamite conquest of Ireland and hence got the title of Earl of Galway, he commanded the Portuguese army in the Spanish, uh, War of Spanish Succession. In the Seven Years' War, um, again, uh, uh, von Lipp, um, a German, had com commanded the Portuguese army. And as recently as 1801, following the Portuguese uh, defeat by Spain in the, the so-called War of the Oranges, um, von der Goltz had been appointed, another German uh, had been appointed, I use German in a loose term because there was no German country at this stage, another German had been appointed, uh, he hadn't lasted very long, but the, with a view to reforming the Portuguese army. So there was this tradition of foreign employment at the top. And it, it didn't, it, did, it certainly wasn't a problem, uh, well one or two Portuguese officers he did fall out with over his time there, but that's not that surprising and he, he weathered it, yeah. So what does he actually change um, as after he's, he's brought in? Because it's remarkable how much success he achieved in a very short space of time. By Basako, which for listeners is 1810, the Portuguese army is in a state where it is able to kind of prove itself as incredibly steady. And I know people, certainly contemporaries, sometimes made disparaging comments about um, the Portuguese troops. And I think that generally people's comments generally were based on their own personal experiences rather than anything that was representative. But when you sit back and, and review the, the service record for the Portuguese, they're, they're a remarkably steady body of troops. They are dependable. I think Rory Muir makes the point that generally speaking, certainly this is at Salamanca, the Portuguese don't break in any other situation other than one where the British troops would have broken anyway. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. I think, I mean, I think I would say this is, is part of a remarkable achievement. Because um, remember, he goes out in March 1809, and he's no sooner trying to get some troops together and do some basic training than Sult is on his northern border with a second Portuguese invasion and captures Porto on the 29th of March. And northern Portugal is in chaos with, um, indeed, 
um, the militias shooting their own commanders and things. Uh, Frere d'Andrade was lynched by his own forces for withdrawing in front of, uh, in front of Braga towards Porto. So there is absolute chaos in, in Portugal when he arrives. Now there is a small British force there um, in Lisbon itself um, under Craddock, under General Craddock, um, but it's no, in no way capable of facing uh, a, a, an invasion. He has about 8,000 men, plus stragglers, interestingly enough, which again I think would make a lovely story if one could gather the materials together. These people who lost their way or fell out on, the, on Sir John Moore's march into Spain and then up to the Asturias and Galicia, they, a lot of them made their way back to Portugal uh, as individuals and sort of joined up ad hoc battalions again. So Craddock had some of these as well, but in no way did he have a force that could resist a concerted French invasion. Luckily, Soult um, sat in Porto and didn't do terribly much. He sent forward forces down to the Vuga, to, an, to the next river down, if you like, uh, cavalry and stuff. But <clears throat> Beresford starts, and he starts, um, he, he no sooner starts than, than, as I say, Soult is on his, on his border, on his case. Um, he starts by um, trying to ensured that the Portuguese army is trained the same way as the British army. And for this purpose, he introduces the British infantry regulations, the British cavalry regulations, and has them translated into Portuguese. One of his ADCs, William War, is of the famous War Port family, born in Portugal, brought up in Portugal, but sent to school in England, obviously bilingual. And War spends his time translating these regulations into Portuguese. And Beresford, quite simply, when he gets the chance, and he's not getting much of a chance in early 1809, he trains and trains and trains. These regiments are out every day training and getting used to commands. And what he does is um, he, first of all, he does purge the army. He purges it of what he regards as useless officers, particularly old officers who were still lieutenants age 60 because they'd never done anything, this sort of thing. You know, they were, there was this, you know, so he purges the army and he puts in uh, initially his 24 um, officers he gets from England, but he then writes back to England. He writes to Wellesley as well, by the way. This is one of the things you'll see. Beresford and Wellesley frequently engage in correspondence together long before the Peninsular War. Uh, they're at it, you know, and, uh, you know, and in fact, Beresford would correspond with Wellesley when the convention of Sintra, the arguments were going on. He didn't always just correspond with Dalrymple. He'd be sending notes to Wellesley and saying, you know, shouldn't we do this? Shouldn't we do that? You know, it's, it's an interesting dynamic, even at that stage. But discipline, training, training, discipline. Um, he realizes 24 men is not good, officers is not going to do it. He gets another 30. And then he writes in the summer of 1809, and says, I would like to have 179 officers. He's quite specific, from England. Um, now, th th that causes a hiatus because um, they don't really want that number going out. But uh, the 179 was built on having uh, uh, six officers for every infantry regiment, and I think four for every cavalry and a couple for every artillery. You know, it, it, that's why the, the mystical 179 comes together. But over the period of the war, as we know, over 300 British officers served in the Portuguese army. Um, and indeed, I know that Bob Burnham is doing a lot of work on this. Uh, and um, uh, of course, uh, 
work is being done here in Ireland by Jim Deary, um, whom I think you know as well. So he, Jim is doing a huge amount of work on, on this as well. So um, in early 1809, though, Wellesley is appointed and becomes supreme commander, if you like, in Portugal. And Beresford has absolutely no problem with this. There's no, there's no friction here at all. But Wellesley arrives in April and no sooner has arrived than he wants to go up and beat up Sult in Porto. And <clears throat> Beresford supplies him with a couple of Portuguese uh, regiments, uh, the 1st and the 16th, I think it is, or 10th and 16th, I can't quite remember. But they perform reasonably well in the Porto campaign, where Wellesley sends Beresford up on the interior of Portugal to stop Sult escaping along the valley of the Douro back into Spain. And it's there that the first problem arises, because one of the generals who is meant to go with his brigade to, with Beresford is Tilson. And Tilson doesn't like it. He feels he shouldn't be serving under Beresford. And uh, now, they fight the campaign. As we know, they, they stop, effectively, um, the, port, the, the, the French going back to Spain that way. And uh, Sult has to abandon all his baggage after the Battle of Porto, all of his artillery, and they escape over the mountains. And, um, you know, they're not wiped out in any way, but they're, they're not an effective fighting force anymore. Um, <clears throat> but uh, I mention it because Tilson has this problem. And um, Beresford obviously corresponds with Wellington about the problem, and they're having none of it. And Wellington just tells, tells him, you will serve with him or else you go back to England. Actually, he does go back. To, first of all, he, he submits. He says, I will serve with Beresford. But then a little later, about a year later, he goes back to England. But I think that's not nothing to do with Beresford. I think he, he obtained an inheritance. And Tilson changes his name to Chown and re reappears as Chown in the peninsula later on in the war. So uh, I don't think that, but, and Mackenzie was another general who had a, a bit of a problem uh, serving under Beresford. But by and large, he seems to have got on well enough, you know? And he certainly got on very well with Roland Hill. Uh, later on, he got on very well with Roland Hill. Um, and I, I've seen no problems with, with Picton or Paget or any of these, you know, people. So how much free reign does he have given Wellington's nature then whilst we're on this kind of topic of interpersonal connections because he's field marshal of the Portuguese army but he's junior to Wellington. Wellington has overall command and therefore has authority over Beresford. Mm. Do you get the sense that Wellington's kind of breathing down his neck a lot? I, I know Hill has quite a kind of deferential relationship with Wellington. Is Beresford more his own man because he is marshal of the Portuguese service and so it's for him to reform that army as he sees fit? Or is it that Wellington's there going, actually, that's a bad idea, you want to do it this way? I, I think, well, I think he, he has an extremely good relationship with Wellington, but just to, to step back, one step back, there's a third person in this triangle, and that is Dom Miguel Forjaz, the secretary, Portuguese secretary of war, the colonies, and the Navy, I think, um, in the Regency. And Forjaz, um, unlike some members of the Regency, is at this stage um, during the war extremely supportive of, of both of anything that Wellington and Beresford are trying to do. And it is Forjaz who is the linchpin because he effectively has to oversee the recruitment to the army to ensure that, that there are enough people coming through to ensure that, um, which was always a problem in Portugal, that these people are fed watered, clothed, armed, whatever. Now, 
we know that, of course, there was a huge British financial subvention to the Portuguese army, um, but it was never enough. And Portugal was effectively uh, pretty well bankrupt at this stage and wasn't helped by the fact that its trade, which it, it, its income, it had primarily been based on its monopoly of trade from Brazil, which now, of course, the British had direct access to. So it didn't have to go through Portugal. So, you know, but Forjas is really important to this entire relationship. And he uh, supports both Wellington and Beresford's ambitions and desires in as many ways as possible. Now, <clears throat> I think because they came from a similar background, what you might call an Anglo-Irish background, um, they get on very, very well. And Beresford is very good at his job at resuscitating the Portuguese army. There are very few instances of disagreement, uh, and Wellington even gave way on some issues when he did have disagreements with Beresford. Um, Wellington didn't want to have to deal with the Regency on a daily basis, and he just said, Beresford, get on with it. I don't want to have to deal with these people. Um, and, and later, there was quite a conflict between Wellington and, and the Regency um, in, in relation to 1810 and the lines of Torres Vedras and the, the retreat to the lions, you know, but they, uh, Wellington put it very succinctly. I can't remember who he wrote to in England, but it was, it was probably Castlereagh, but it might, it might, might have been Liverpool, but it was probably Castlereagh. And he said, Beresford and I are Adidem. It is impossible for two people to, understa to understand each other better than we do. I think that's quite a telling comment, you know. Um, he writes that back, you know. So, um, and again, uh, I mean, I'm getting ahead of myself, but, but well, maybe not. In 1811, when uh, Wellington sends Beresford off to what they hope is the relief of Badajoz, not knowing that the French have taken Badajoz, this is before Albuera, you know, the French look as if they're going to make a stand at Pombal. And Wellington has no sooner sent Beresford off towards Badajoz than he calls him back. He says, come back. I think the French are going to make a stand here. And he calls him, and I think it's the 4th Division, back uh, the, the, back to, towards Pombal. Now, eventually, that didn't materialize as a major battle. But it shows something of his regard for Beresford. You know, uh, it, No matter how important Badajoz was, he wanted to pull him back. Now, as to their differences, um, Wellington on his arrival, um, well, first of all, there was this reluctance of some British to serve under, under Beresford. And Wellington said, this would be sorted, Beresford, if you would just resign your British commission and only have your Portuguese commission. And Beresford said, no. And that was, that was the end of that. I mean, the, Wellington didn't hold it against him in any way. And then secondly, the insertion of British officers into the Portuguese army. Wellington began to query, was this a good idea? Was this a worthwhile investment? And Beresford managed to convince him that it was, so much so that you'll see Wellington later suggested, uh, recommended that British officers might be inserted into Spanish regiments. Now that was never done for both political and economic reasons, but Wellington was won over. And I, 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 you know, you look for these areas of potential disagreement, but there aren't really any. Quite remarkable, really, isn't yeah. it? That yeah. you know, Wellington, because Wellington is not known for his willingness to uh, really <clears throat> relinquish much control to his subordinates in in yeah. any way. So it is, as you say, a, a mark of the trust that Wellington had for Beresford. That he was prepared to say 
yeah, do it. But equally, it's a sign of Beresford's competence. Because if he hadn't been yeah. able to do it, Wellington wouldn't have allowed the situation to continue. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm not making any claims that Beresford was an outstanding general, but I think he was an outstanding administrator. And I think Wellington really valued that. Let's let's talk about Basako then, because this is one of the defining moments, really, for the Portuguese army. And it's even argued that Wellington didn't need to, to fight at Basako. Um, people have suggested that it might have been done in order to um, partly create a morale boosting effect um, at home, partly create a morale boosting effect for the Portuguese, uh, and partly to kind of tick that box of, look, I made a stand, but ultimately the position was outflanked. But it's also a battle that didn't really need to be fought, in, in my opinion. When you look at the position, the idea of, of scaling the heights of Osaka is just sort of slightly mental in, in my humble view. But anyway, let, let's talk about it from the Portuguese perspective. Well, I think you're right, because if you stand at the top of Busaco and you look down those hills, you wonder what on earth those poor Frenchmen were doing, coming up a very steep incline time after time to try and get over the top and then as the, the Allied army popping up from behind the hill and just destroying them, you know. But <clears throat> I think what had happened was that the Christmas, at the Christmas New Year period of 1809, Wellington and Beresford had gone on a tour of the Portuguese regiments. There are 24 Portuguese infantry regiments. Now they didn't inspect them all, but the ones they did inspect, Wellington was very favorably impressed. And on that basis, he decided to start brigading them with the British. And uh, they didn't let that, they didn't let the British down afterwards, after that at all. And every British division, apart from the first division, uh, had Portuguese regiments or brigades attached to it. And in addition, there was a Portuguese division under Sir John Hamilton, and there were Portuguese independent brigades. And one of the commanders who'd arrived out in the autumn uh, to command one of the independent Portuguese brigades was no less a person than Colonel Dennis Pack. And Dennis Pack and his independent Portuguese brigade, which was the first and the 16th Portuguese and the fourth Casadores, were effectively attached to Crawford at the Battle of Busaco, on the, beside the convent, where Ney's columns came up and threw themselves at them, and they resisted so well. And there were other Portuguese regiments which performed heroically as well at Busaco, but afterwards, um, Wellington was terribly complimentary, both of uh, the Portuguese regiments and of Beresford's uh, restructure and training of those regiments. Let's, let's talk about one of those darker moments of Beresford's career, which, as folks who are familiar with the Peninsula War will know, was Albuera. Firstly, let's give folks a, a sense of, of what went wrong at Albuera. Well, well <clears throat> I think if we could just back up the truck to Badajoz, because uh, that was what he was sent down, was to relieve Badajoz. First of all, uh, it's, 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 Beresford was only appointed to command the British army on the left bank of the Tagus at Christmas 1810, because Roland Hill had to go home. And it was only a temporary command. Roland Hill was ill, there was no doubt about that, I can't remember what he was ill with, but he had to go home to England to, re to 
recover. And um, then in early 1811, when Massena retires from Santarem on 4th, 5th of March um, and, and begins the long trek back to the Spanish border, um, at that time, everybody knows that Badajoz is under siege uh, by the, the French. And Wellington determines to send the second division, which was Hill's division, of course, uh, and the fourth division under Cole, Lowry Cole, together with uh, Hamilton's Portuguese division down to, towards uh, Badajoz with a view to relieving the siege. But of course, <clears throat> they then get knowledge that Badajoz has surrendered. Beresford arrives down there and his so-called expedition to relieve Badajoz is now converted into a siege and recovery of Badajoz. Um, they fight, uh, they have a, an encounter at Campo Mayor, um, where the, uh, and then they recover Olivenza as well, which isn't a major siege, but they recover Olivenza in, 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 April, um, in April 1811. But Beresford's placed with a real dilemma because he has no siege guns. He has no siege equipment. The British army hasn't done sieges. How on earth does he go about it? Now, the only good thing is he has Dixon with him uh, for, for his artillery with him. So that, that's, that's a plus. But they end up having to get guns from Elvash, from the fort at Elvash. Some of them are 200 years old. And by the time they get them in place and they start firing, they just start falling apart. Now, that isn't the only problem because, <clears throat> um, of course, uh, Beresford is to be joined by Spanish forces under, uh, Spanish forces under, um, I think it was Ballesteros and Blake, Blake, and, and Castanias. And Castanias um, is actually with Beresford fairly early on, but goes, as they say, as, 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 as somebody else said, in one of the letters home, he's gone walk about a l'Espagnol. So they didn't quite know where Castanios was, but actually Beresford and Castanios certainly got on very well. That's another good, good relationship. But <clears throat> Beresford's sometimes criticized for the delay in undertaking the siege of Badajoz. But A, he didn't have the equipment, and B, Wellington wrote to him and said, do not undertake the siege of Badajoz until and unless you secure the commitment of the Spanish to support you totally. And that commitment from Blake only, was only received by Beresford on the 8th of May, the day he started the siege. So uh, th th there, is, there was some comment, and I mean, I think uh, um, Alexander Gordon uh, one of Wellington's ADCs initially was part of that criticism, but he later revised it and said, I realize now what was happening. And, uh, you know, that, so the delay shouldn't be attributed to, to Beresford. Um, Wellington, you know, we talk about his micromanaging of situations and he was micromanaging Badahoth as well. He comes down um, at the end of April, 20th of April, he comes down and he shows Beresford the, the ground at Albuera and he says, this is where you will fight. And this is where you will put your army if you have to fight. But by the way, don't fight unless you're pretty sure you're gonna win. Do not fight unless you're sure you're gonna win. And also again, get the Spanish to commit. You must get the Spanish to commit. This was the first time that 
the Spanish, the Portuguese, and the British armies were to be unified under one command. I remember at Talavera, the Spanish weren't, they weren't doing what Wellington told them at all. And that gave rise, that gave rise to some problems as well. I, I, I think that um, Beresford commenced the siege of Badajoz on the 8th of May, um, but effectively had to lift it on the 12th of May when news came that Sult was marching up from Sevilla um, with a force, a considerable force. And um, Beresford made contact with Blake and Castanius and they had a powwow and um, they agreed um, at that powwow ultimately to fight and to fight at Albuera, if that was possible. The basis of the decision to fight at Albuera, it made quite good sense. There were a lot of roads crisscrossing there. Also, just remember that the Guadiana, the river that flows uh, around Badajoz, takes a big southward turn just after Badajoz and comes down what is the Portuguese-Spanish border. And Beresford's Tete du Pont, his only way back into Portugal, was at Juromenia, south of Elvash. And he had that heavily fortified uh, and guarded, but that was his only way of retreat into Portugal should he need to do so. And there was access he could get back from Albuera to Juromenia should he need to do so. But <clears throat> um, if we look at Albuera, um, I think that the powwow they had is, is really interesting because of course Napier uh, uh, amongst others criticized Beresford uh, considerably for his performance uh, at Albuera. And I think you need to bear in mind that his instructions were not to fight unless sure of victory. And he was not at all convinced that he should fight this battle. And um, it, 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 it transpires that what happened, and there's no doubt what happened, was that Blake, who had, uh, do you have, I think about 12,000 maybe Spaniards with him, apart from the Spaniards with Castanias, said, if you don't fight here, I'm going to fight Sult alone. I, I'm not going to retire into Portugal with you. And Beresford realized that if Blake fought Sult, he'd just be overrun and destroyed, totally annihilated. So in a way, he had a, a gun put to his head on this, and he determined to fight at Albuera. And then, <clears throat> uh, of course, I, I don't want this to appear as a series of excuses, but um, on the night before, on the 15th of May, Blake was late in getting up with his army, and his army was only arriving the morning of the 16th, the morning of the battle. It started to arrive apparently just after midnight, one o'clock, but was still, because of the darkness and everything else, was having difficulty getting in place. And they were faced across the stream against the French, who were across the stream, the Pardisales and the, the, the uh, Albuera strips, the two little streams that meet there, rivers. They're very small now. I think they were probably rather bigger at the time and they were facing them across. And very early in the battle, it transpired that um, the French, instead of making a full frontal attack, were trying to do a hook around Beresford's right and come in from the right-hand side. And this was before the battle had even properly started. And Beresford tried to get Blake to move the Spanish who were on the right of the Allied army. It was the, the, the British army was in the center. So this is the second division in the center. Hamilton's Portuguese and some cavalry out on the left, uh, the Spaniards out on the right, and beyond them, some British cavalry and Spanish cavalry. Lumley with the British cavalry uh, and the Spanish cavalry. Um, <clears throat> so Beresford tried to get them to about face, to, to face the 
the French coming down. But Blake was having none of it. He was still convinced the main French force was coming straight across at him. So there was a huge delay with the result that only a number of small, a small number of Spanish regiments were in place facing the main French attack when it took place. Um, and uh, the Spanish regiments under Zayas uh, and the other co commanders of brigades there fought heroically for a number of hours until they, they really suffered there. And I, I, I wouldn't like it to be taken that the Spanish didn't stand and fight because sometimes there's a perception that they fought better behind walls than in open country. And they, they were heroic on this day. And eventually they have to give way. And Beresford has to order the second division, which is behind, he has the King's German Legion, by the way, occupying the village of Albuera, you know, so that that can't be taken by the French. Uh, and there is fighting going on there as well, of course, but it's not the main attack, which is off to his right. He <clears throat> orders, Ber uh, he orders Stuart, who commands the second division, Hill is still away, of course, uh, a Stuart to move the second division or some of it round to support the Spaniards. And Stuart does this, but he doesn't do it in the proper fashion. He doesn't do it in squares. They do it in loose columns. And Colborne, who's in charge of one of the brigades, um, actually says to, says to Stuart, can we stop and get into squares? We're in danger here. And Stuart will have none of it. Now, perhaps he perceived it was urgent, you know, and that they had to get over to help the Spaniards. But for whatever reason, they were in loose columns. And hey, presto, the, um, the, 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 the Ulans, the, the, the um, Polish cavalry with their lancers, which uh, Sult has with him, appear and they cause absolutely havoc with these, these columns. And they get in behind the columns, not, and they even get in towards Beresford and his staff. And there's a famous painting of Beresford unhorsing one of these uh, Polish um, uh, lancers um, at, at the Battle of Albuera. So again, without appearing too defensive, I don't think you can really blame Beresford for this. Stuart was the one who should have got his men into squares and got them moving across in the right sort of way. But it didn't happen. And of course, as we all know, the second division, and particularly the, the, the third and the 57th regiments were, were decimated. And Daniel Houghton died there. He's one of the fellows who's uh, a major general. He's buried in, in Elvash. And I always feel a special connection when I'm out in Elvash with him because Houghton actually had served with Beresford in the 88th as a, a relatively junior officer as well. So they obviously knew each other quite well. So when the ceremonies go on in Elvash each year uh, um, and, and there's wreath laying, uh, I'm always glad if they ask me to, to lay the wreath on, on, on Houghton's grave um, for that reason, I, I think. Uh, so, um, so that happens then <clears throat> ultimately, of course, as we know, um, Lowry Cole and the 4th Division, which are Beresford's reserve, um, uh, whether it was Harding or whether it was Cole himself who determined that they should ride in uh, and hit the French very hard on what is now the French left flank. Um, <clears throat> they do that and of course, and there's a Portuguese, uh, a couple of Portuguese brigades with them and they fight very well at this time. But whether it's uh, Cole or Harding who decided doesn't really matter. The fact is that the 4th Division was the reserve to guard Beresford's potential retreat to the Tete de Pont and to get into Portugal. Also, the 4th Division had only arrived itself on the morning of the battle from Badajoz because it had been the last division, the last troops left at Badajoz to try and keep 
the French bottled in. And they'd only marched that night and got into the battle, to the battleground early in the morning as well. So no doubt about it, the fourth division saved the day. Cole and Harding and all these boys with them, they do save the day. And um, <clears throat> I, it, it just moves on. I mean, there is no doubt that um, Beresford was uh, traumatically affected by this battle. And, and um, it, it's very interesting because you think, I think you need to look at the battle in perspective of the whole, what was happening. We'd had Fuentes de Honoro on the 3rd to the 5th of May, where Wellington himself admitted, had Napoleon been here, the outcome would have probably been rather different. We then had the escape from Almeida of General Brenier and his corps. Wellington was outraged at this, and the news going back to England wasn't very good. But as, uh, uh, you know, when Albuera happened, it was all the more important that, I mean, it was a Brit an Allied victory. I mean, no doubt about that, because Soult didn't manage to relieve Badajoz, and they just moved back, and they had the second siege of Badajoz, which within a day or two, um, the, the Portuguese division, which hadn't been involved, Beresford's Portuguese division, was moved back to Badajoz the following day. And there was no benefit to the French from the battle. And, and Soult retired to Sevilla and then back down to, towards Cadiz. But <clears throat> Beresford was traumatically affected. But I think if you look at this in the context of the whole, um, Fuentes de Anoro, Almeida, Albuera, there was a lot of bad news going, or potentially bad news. And, you know, um, it, it's very interesting, I think, that, uh, and I, I, again, Beresford gets the thanks of, of, the, of Parliament for Albuera. And I don't think there was any thanks for Fuentes de Honoro. I don't think there was a vote of thanks for that. And I think that there was a perception in the army that, you know, they were winning, but they were only just about winning at this stage. Now, as we do know, it turned out that after 1811, apart from one small incursion in early 1812, the French didn't come back into Portugal. It was a turning point. But Beresford was very affected, and there's no doubt about that. There are reports of him looking sick, looking ill, um, and he wrote home and he wasn't feeling himself. And as when Hill comes back to resume his command in June at the Siege of Badajoz, the second Siege of Badajoz, Beresford uh, then goes back to Lisbon and he re recovers himself, but he also is very involved in trying to get the Portuguese. Portuguese were having huge supply problems in organizing the Portuguese army. And <clears throat> it is suggested in uh, some, some uh, accounts that he doesn't do much for the rest of 1811, but he does in fact, because he goes back and he has six regiments of Casadores in early 1811. And by the end of that year, he has 12 regiments of Casadores, of light infantry. So there's a big reform going on and a big additional uh, manpower going on. I'm glad you mentioned the, the emotional impact because it, it has always struck me that he sort of seems emotionally scarred by the battle. There's that famous comment that Wellington makes when he reads the first draft of the Alboro Dispatch that, you know, you need to write me a victory. Uh, yeah. and sort of go away and do it again. It's, it's almost like sort of handing back somebody's homework or something. Yeah. Um, how how long do you think that that legacy of Albuera stays with him? Well, it's very interesting. I mean, he doesn't uh, effectively appear on the front line again until the siege of Ciudad Rodrigo. And even there, he's, um, he, you know, he only struggles up to, to make the siege. Just, you know, he's not in, really involved in it. Um, uh, but 
I think what's important is that Wellington doesn't lose confidence in him. There, there are no signs that Wellington loses confidence in him. And Wellington uses him a bit as a hammer, as a sledgehammer, I might say, on occasions. And he is, uh, Wellington uses him at the Battle of Nivelle, the Battle of Ortez, the Battle of Toulouse. He is leading the charge. Beresford is admittedly under Wellington's watching eye. So, but there's no loss of confidence there. You know, Wellington's clearly prepared to use him. Do others lose confidence in him? Because there is always that big question. Wellington never appoints a second in command. At yeah. one point, people talk about Beresford. At other points, they talk about Graham. Do others kind of look at Albuera and go, hmm? Oh, I, I'm sure they do. I'm sure they do. Uh, and Wellington, um, I mean, Wellington is very public about it. He says, if I'm incapacitated for any reason, then Beresford's the man to take over here. And, you know, he even says he may not be as good a general as some of you, but he's the one to organize an army, you know, and he fights this fight on Beresford's behalf with the government in England, who really are very uh, wary of this because seniority is the great, you know, be all and end all. And he eventually gets their agreement that Beresford will be appointed to command the army in the event of his, Wellington's, incapacity on a temporary basis. Now, God knows what would, happen, would have happened had Wellington been incapacitated, but he does secure that agreement from the government at home. I want to give a bit of time to consider Beresford's life after the Peninsula War. What happened to his career beyond 1814? Yeah, well, that's pretty interesting. Um, and if I could fly a flag, I've just written an article for a Portuguese journal on, on the period 1814-1830 um, on, on the return or the non-return of the Portuguese royal family to Portugal. Um, What's the name of the but, journal? Uh, gosh, now, it's the Revista, Revista Anglo-Portuguesa, something like that, I think it is. Yes, I'm pretty sure that's it. Um, uh, oh, sorry, Revista de Estudos Anglo-Portuguesas. Uh, not sure, I think it'll appear, well, in the next couple of months, anyhow. But um, <clears throat> Beresford, um, after Toulouse, uh, goes back to England and Ireland and visits his family for the first time uh, since uh, early 1809. Uh, he doesn't spend long there because he's still Commander-in-Chief of the Portuguese Army. Um, <clears throat> he and Wellington both shared a, a real um, dislike of uh, officers going back to Britain during the war and did their utmost to stop them. Um, uh, and it was another uh, thing, bond they had in common, I think. But anyhow, Beresford goes back to England, visits Ireland as well, and then sails back to Portugal in August 1814 to resume his command. And he, he does resume that command. He is in command of the Portuguese army until 1820. But in 1815, as we all know, one Napoleon Bonaparte leaves his vacation spot of Elba, heads back to France in the Hundred Days. And virtually the first thing Wellington does, Wellington is at the Congress in Vienna at this stage. And vir virtually the first thing he does when he hears about this is he writes to Beresford and says, can you send me 15,000 Portuguese to the Low Countries? I need them. And Beresford is more than willing to do so. But the Portuguese Regency, which no longer is threatened by French people, French armies marching into Portugal, says, oh, we can't do this. We can't do this without the direct authority of the king 
or, or the, of, the, of the crown. The crown, of course, is in Rio de Janeiro. Can they get instructions from Rio de Janeiro? Do they want to get instructions from Rio de Janeiro? Probably not. But in any event, it's much to Beresford's chagrin and Wellington's upset, the Portuguese are not at Waterloo. The Portuguese actually, the crown, Portuguese crown, had another strategy in mind. They themselves were trying to take advantage of Spain's uh, weakness in South America and extend the frontiers of what is now modern day Brazil at this time. And we see, um, uh, <clears throat> we see a group, an armed corps of I think 15,000, nearly 15,000 Portuguese at the end of 1815 are sent out to Brazil and to help the crown there fight the Spanish in South America. Um, meanwhile, Portugal is more concerned about its traditional enemy, Spain, than it is about France, and um, particularly a potential Spanish invasion. And there are rumors that some Portuguese nobility actually want Spain back into Portugal, because remember, Spain had occupied Portugal for nearly 100 years um, beforehand. Um, <clears throat> Beresford is really juggling the balls, and at the same time, Dom For Miguel Forjas, his old ally, is now against him. He's trying to reduce the army. He's trying to save money. He's trying to do all these things. Uh, and um, the Regency has now turned against Beresford, um, with some exceptions, um, and he has a real struggle on his hands. So in 1816, he heads to Brazil, and he, come, he goes to Brazil, or sorry, late, late, yeah, late 1815, he goes to Brazil. And he's there in 1816 when Queen Maria, the, the, the queen in name of Portugal, dies. She has been, as we know, incapacitated for many years. Dom João has been the, the regent. But this is a sign of the regard he's held in. At her funeral, uh, the marshal is one of the pallbearers. He is the only foreigner who is a pallbearer at the funeral of Queen Maria in Rio de Janeiro in 1816. It delays his return to Portugal. His reason he went out to Brazil was to persuade the Portuguese crown to come back. He's telling them, you're gonna lose this kingdom. If you don't come back to Portugal, you're gonna lose this kingdom. And he doesn't succeed. Um, eventually in late 1816 with additional powers, um, uh, he returns to Portugal. And in 1817, there's a um, what's known as the, the Gomes Freire conspiracy, um, which is a suspected uh, rebellion to overthrow the Regency and to get rid of Beresford. Um, a lot of British officers had stayed on in the Portuguese army after the war. This wasn't a very popular move vis-a-vis -vis the Portuguese at this stage. Uh, they wanted the positions themselves as much as anything else. And so For Forjas is trying to discourage the British and send them home and not paying them properly and all this sort of stuff's going on. And some of them are going home. But Beresford is there and some of his chief lieutenants are still there. Now, Benjamin Durban, who'd been with him all the way through um, is, 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 as his quartermaster general, leaves in 1817. And Robert Arbuthnot, who I've mentioned earlier on in this story, leaves also in 1817. So he loses two really good, strong legs to his chair. But He's back in Portugal, the Gomes Freire conspiracy, he learns that there's this plot to overthrow. And he, he, does, he really wants to let it develop and find out who's behind it. But he goes to talk to people he trusts. And they say, look, you better go to the Regency with this. You've got to declare your hand now. 
and they do, they have the whole dawn raids, everything else. Gomes Frere, incidentally, had fought for the French during the war, um, is arrested along with, um, I think, 20 others, odd others, and they are tried, and most of them, uh, quite a lot of them are executed. Now, Beresford actually has nothing to do with the trial and execution because his function is a military function and he doesn't have anything to do with it. In fact, he tries to arrange a comfortable life for Bernardin Freire um, in, in jail and ensure that he's fed properly, looked after, has books and comfortable bed and all the rest of it. But eventually Freire is uh, executed and um, it causes a huge upset in Portugal. And Beresford was blamed for this, um, somewhat unfair, in fact, very unfairly, I think. Um, what happens just to accelerate on is that in 1818, after this conspiracy, which has failed, things are so quiet in Portugal that Beresford actually goes to Northern France and goes to the battlefield of Waterloo um, with friends and has a look at it and takes part in the grand review um, before the Allied armies dispersed, because you remember they were occupying France for three years. That ends in 1818, the November 1818, and he's part of that review and then goes back to Portugal again. Um, in 1820, there is further difficulties. There's a revolution going on in Spain. There's a, a, a um, Beresford um, cannot get uh, the army mobilized properly, cannot get the defenses put properly. There's a huge Spanish army in Cadiz, ostensibly going to South America, but um, it actually revolts and they're very concerned that it's gonna come into Portugal. He goes back off to Brazil again to try and persuade the royal family, Dom Joao, now King Joao VI, to come back to Portugal. He spends a couple of months in uh, Brazil. He fails he, to get Joao to come back Joao does give him additional powers, which makes him no longer answerable to the Regency in Portugal. So sweeping powers, and he gives him money to pay the army. So money comes out of Brazil to pay the army. Beresford sails back to Lisbon, arrives back in Lisbon. Hey, presto, the revolution has taken place. He's not allowed to land. And there's a radical government, a liberal government, now in control of Portugal. So he resigns his commission and goes back to England. Um, so that's pretty well the end of his military command. Now, there were subsequent attempts, but I, I feel we probably haven't time to go into them today, to get him back into military command in Portugal. There were at least three attempts during the 1820s to get him to resume that command. Um, but that's another story, I think. So what was his private life like then in the years after his, his career in, in Portugal? We mentioned earlier that he ends up marrying his childhood sweetheart. Yeah, well, first of all, he's um, in, in, 18, in 1821 or two, I think it is, he's made Lieutenant General of the Ordnance and uh, he's made Viscount Beresford in 1823. He's also made the Governor of Jersey, where you remember he'd been with the 88th Regiments stationed there back in 1797, 98. Um, and that obviously takes up a bit of his time, but he's dabbling in Portuguese. Uh, he is dabbling in Portuguese politics. He's um, very close to Wellington, and when Wellington puts his first government in place in 1828, he makes Beresford Master General of the Ordnance, which was still, of course, uh, a position with access to the cabinet at that time. And uh, I think, quite frankly, I think Wellington just wanted someone he knew would support him, and Beresford would support him through thick and thin. And uh, Beresford wasn't a politician, 
Um, he had stood briefly uh, as a, and had been a member of parliament for one of the Irish, uh, Dungarvan, which is a, a constituency in the south of Ireland. And in fact, his first title had been Baron Beresford of Albuera and Dungarvan. So you can see that the connection there, knitting together the connection. But Beresford, I don't think, was that interested in politics per se. Uh, when Wellington's government falls in 1830, um, <clears throat> Beresford then, soon after that, marries this first cousin of his, Louisa Hope that had been, and they go and they live in Bedgebury in Kent. And they buy a, a large pile in Kent and they live there. And, um, you know, I think effectively he drops out of politics and uh, he, he, he drops out of the army after 1830. Although very interestingly, when Wellington was trying to form a government in 1834, again, the government which ultimately Peel formed instead of Wellington, Wellington offered Beresford the post of British ambassador to Portugal. Oh. Kind of goes full <laughs> circle, doesn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. So when it comes to summing up his career, what would you say were his great achievements? Ooh. <clears throat> well, I think, I mean, his, his great achievements must be the, um, the Portuguese army, you know, really must be the, the creation of a fighting force. And, and I, I just, uh, I've, I've written down actually, because I couldn't quite remember them, a couple of quotes, which I'll just give you, I think, because they're worth it. Wellington in 1813, the good conduct of the Portuguese officers and troops in all the operations of the present campaign and the spirit which they show on every occasion are not less honorable to that nation than they are to the military character of the officer, Beresford, who by his judicious measures has re-established discipline and renewed a military spirit in the army. And Massena, the great opponent, the Portuguese soldier, intelligent, austere, an unflagging walker, commanded by British officers and subjected to British discipline, were as efficient as the Anglo-Hanoverians and in some cases better than them because the Portuguese are often possessed of strong feelings of enthusiasm and honor. <laughs> now, <clears throat> could Wellington have succeeded in Portugal without Beresford's Portuguese army? It'd been pretty hard, I think, pretty hard. I mean, from Busaco onwards, he always had 25,000 plus Portuguese frontline troops fighting for him. And the British public might have become disillusioned if things hadn't gone the way they did. I think the other characteristic which I've just referred to already was the loyalty of certain uh, British officers to Beresford. They recognized that, you know, as I say, he may not have been the best general in the world, but he had certain talents and they were prepared to follow him to the ends of the earth, literally, you know. Um, his disappointments, well, he must have had disappointments, of course. Um, I think his greatest disappointment might well have been um, not being able to take a Portuguese army to the Low Countries in 1815. He was very upset about that. Um, uh, and Wellington didn't hold it against him, by the way. Wellington never held it against him. Um, obviously, uh, Albuera was a disappointment. Um, uh, he hadn't, he was very reluctant to fight it. He had Wellington's permission to withdraw, but he found himself in an impossible situation. And I think people like Oman recognized that Napier was grossly unfair to Beresford in his, his judgment. Um, his inability to persuade the Portuguese royals to return to Portugal after the war. I think he, he felt that 
keenly. He knew that to save the kingdom, they just had to come back to Portugal. And, and they didn't, and ironically, they did in 1821, after the liberal revolution, they had to, and they did, and they tried to resuscitate the, the monarchy. And effectively, there was a civil war for the next 30 years in Portugal. I mean, it was, it was horrendous stuff, you know. Um, <clears throat> I think he was a much more complex man than people would give him, uh, often give him credit for. They, they regard him as a tough, bluff, no-nonsense soldier. I think that um, he called a spade a spade, uh, but Thomas Creevey, the, the Whig politician and sometime journalist, um, found him straightforward. Um, didn't, uh, he said, I went to see him prepared to dislike him. And I found him very straightforward, without airs and graces, you know. Um, uh, he, so he was a strict disciplinarian, but he was capable of considerable humanity as we've seen in both Ireland and in relation to some of his court martials, by the way, which we haven't really got into. But, you know, um, while he was strict, he, he was pretty fair about those. And by the way, he was, when he was a strict disciplinarian, he was strict vis-a-vis -vis the British officers in the Portuguese army, just as much as Portuguese officers and men. So, you know, there was no favoritism there, you know. And in fact, um, Roland Hill, his brother Noel was in the Portuguese army with Beresford. And Noel was grumbling to Hill about, or trying to secure advancement, you know. And, you know, he said, I've talked to Beresford about this and that. And, you know, he's writing to Roland Hill. And Roland Hill says, you know, just be patient. You know, it would help if you were Irish, he says. <laughs> but, you know, but then there's a lovely letter later from Roland Hill saying, you know, Beresford has done us proud by his promotion of Noel. So there's a recognition there that, you know, um, despite the, the remark, it would be better if you were Irish, you know? Um, so that, that's about it, I think, uh, you know, unless there's anything you want to raise. Uh, well, I guess I, I, I do, because I have to ask, and I know everyone will be interested, what are you working on now? Well, <clears throat> um, <laughs> it may seem rather strange, but I started to work on um, romances in the Iberian Peninsula. And uh, I've produced a, a, an article about one particular romance, which has recently been published in The Irish Sword, which is the uh, journal of the Irish Military History Society. And um, so I, I've, I, I've got sidetracked into that, but I've been working on and I've com substantially completed a biography of Dennis Pack. So Beresford's uh, great friend um, and companion through all these wars, and um, I, I just about completed that, but like you and everybody else, I suspect, um, I need to get back to the archives to check a few things before I, I submit it to, uh, to pu publication. And as I say, I've just done this article on, on, on Beresford and the, and the Portuguese royal family, 1814, 1830. And um, so, and I'm, as I say, I've mentioned Jim Deary, who I, I know is working uh, on the Irish in the uh, British Army. And I'm obviously very interested in that as well. And I'm uh, working on perhaps a more narrow focus, the Irish who end up in the Portuguese army. I see. Fantastic. Well, when the, the biography comes out, let me know. And we, we, you know, I've got to have you back on. This has been absolutely fantastic. It's been an epic, but I'm sure the listeners won't mind any more than, than I have, because it's been absolutely fun, fascinating. And you've you're clearly a brilliant storyteller because I, I've basically been able to just sit here and, and absorb all of this, this information. It's been brilliant. Remind people about your biography of William Beresford and where they can get it. 
Um, well, um, will it, will Marshal William Carr Beresford, um, the ablest man I have yet seen in the army, not the yet, um, but that was what Wellington said at the time, the ablest man I have yet seen in the army, um, as published by Irish Academic Press. And if you go on their website, um, you know, uh, probably the easiest way to, to get hold of it, you know. Marcus, it's been absolutely great having you on. Thanks very much well, for joining me. I can only apologize to you and your listeners if I've been too long-winded. I'm sorry about that, Zach, but great to talk to you and great to see you. That was Marcus Beresford joining me to discuss William Carl Beresford, the Marshal. And as you've just heard, Marcus's book on the Marshal is available to order online now. A big thank you to my Napoleonicist patrons who continue to make this podcast and these themed months possible. If you love the podcast and are interested in becoming a patron, just go to patreon.com forward slash the Napoleonicist to find out more. Prices start at a pound a month and there are some great perks including discount codes with publishers, chances to influence future content and shout outs. With that in mind, a particular thank you goes to my mentioned in dispatches patrons who at the time of recording were Rob Griffith, Alexandra Churchill, an anonymous Canadian, Brendan Teeling, John Haynes, Anna Vakulenko, Beatrice de Graaf, Lynn Dawson, Jamie Kingston, Roy Muir, James Bevan, and Lucy Tatner. Join me next week when I'll be speaking to Andrew Dorman about the Irish military establishment in the late 18th century. And in the meantime, please remember to like, share, retweet, review, and join the conversation in the forum at thenapoleonicwars.net and on Twitter, where you can find me at ZWhiteHistory. Until next time, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleon Assist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.